I'm so glad I get to have the opportunity to speak to you guys tonight. A long time ago when Marty and I were talking about this series and what we were going to do, I was like, well, you know, maybe you should go first and I'll kind of get a feel for what the audience is like and uh, kind of get an idea. And then when I realized the second week, I'm like, that's Holy Week. There's no way I can't take that from you, you know? And she's like, no, 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 you can do it. So um, anyways, really glad that I'm here this week, especially because I think uh, this topic that we're going to be talking about tonight is really going to tie in uh, very, very well, and, uh, and we'll, we'll get there. But uh, were we able to get the PowerPoint working, or is that a no-go? Oh, oh, great. Okay, excellent. That says in the wilderness if you can't read it. But <laughs> um, Anyways, yeah, but thank you so much for, uh, for coming out tonight. Um, Marty's already introduced me. I'll say just a little bit more is that Uh, I'm a student of the Bible and the world of the Bible, and what makes me passionate is uh, making the world of the Bible come alive. And one of the most profound experiences I had in Israel, uh, the first time I went, was experiencing the wilderness, because I honestly had no earthly idea what it was like. Um, I grew up in Chicago, and then after Chicago, I moved down to Springfield, Missouri for a while, And uh, needless to say, what we would consider wilderness there was nothing like uh, the wilderness that you'll see in Israel. And that's one of the things we're going to talk about tonight is just how profound this concept of wilderness is and how much it saturates uh, the entire Bible, Old Testament and New Testament. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the New Testament. We're going to definitely be focused on the Old Testament here tonight. Um, But anyways, I'm really excited about this. And just to share a short story my first experience with the wilderness was, um, well, th- this profound experience at any rate. I was uh, on a bus tour, because it was my first time, you know, I was on the tour bus with, the, with all the tourists and everything else, so uh, no shame there. But, um, but anyways, I was on the tour bus, and it was during the heat of the day, and we stopped um, somewhere close to Arad or Beersheba, probably closer to Arad, in the Negev. I'm not, I don't remember why the bus stopped, but I just remember that it stopped, and we had a moment to get off the bus, and we're just in no man's land in Israel. So this is uh, south, if you've got a picture of Israel in your head, uh, this is all the way south into the Negev. I'm going to show you a map of that here in a minute. But um, I remember that we, uh, we walked off the bus. As we're walking off the bus, the, the bus driver is telling us about his complimentary waters for everybody for one dollar thought that was interesting. <laughs> but anyways, um, we get off the tour bus, and I was just astounded by how hot, how dry, and how completely shelterless the wilderness really was. I mean, it was just this desolate, rocky landscape. And so, you know, in your mind, you either think, you know, the lush greenery, or maybe you think like the sands of the Sahara. But no, it's nothing like either of those. It's just this, this desolate rock landscape for as far as you can see. And, uh, and I just realized, my goodness, if it wasn't for this complimentary water for $1 and the tour bus that's air-conditioned right behind me, I'd be lost out there and I would be very quickly, uh, you know, uh, dehydrated and everything else. Um, and so it just struck me how uh, dependent the Israelites had to be as they're wandering in this wilderness going into the Holy Land. So that's some of the concepts we're going to be talking about tonight. But I do want you to think about, um, when you think about the world wilderness, what typically comes to mind. Now, I've done similar lessons uh, like this one before up in the north. And if you go to the next slide, uh, typically this was, oh, uh, one too far, but that's okay. 
um, if you saw, there was a grassy picture just before this one. And um, in Missouri, I would give this lesson, and I'd say, what would you think about when you think about the, the wilderness? Well, they'd say, well, like the Ozarks, you know, Springfield's just right next to the Ozarks, and so you think of that dense uh, vegetation, the rolling hills, that's the wilderness. And, uh, but I realize that this illustration is not as important here, because when I ask you Texans what you think of wilderness, you probably think of West Texas. And I recently had the opportunity to go to Big Bend on spring break, and, um, oh, we're too far. Go back if you can. <laughs> Sorry, what? Uh, yeah. There we go. Okay. But yeah, this was the, uh, the shot from Big Ben. And so if this is what you think of when you think of wilderness, you're actually probably not far off because, after all, um, it's almost as hot there as Fort Worth in August. So uh, we're getting close. Um, let's see. What, what's the next slide? I think it's, yeah, there we go. Okay. So first of all, let's talk about the word, the word wilderness. Uh, it's midbar in Hebrew. Um, wasn't sure if I was going to use Hebrew, but Marty did last week, so I was like, oh, all right, we're, we're there, we're going to use it. So, um, yeah, midbar is, is the most significant word. There's a few different words in Hebrew uh, that connote the idea of wilderness, but this is the one that's used most predominantly, and um, it has to do with... Uh, not just wilderness and desert, uh, but if you can see there, it's kind of off the slide a little bit, but it also has to do with pasture land, and that's really crazy because when I think in my head about these wilderness experiences in Israel, I think this is nothing uh, like pasture land, but in fact, um, the Bedouin and the nomads have been scratching a living off this wilderness for thousands of years, and uh, they raise sheep, and every once in a while, as you go through, uh, you will have the opportunity to see these Bedouin uh, leading their sheep through the wilderness, and it's really an amazing uh, sight to behold. Um, so the next thing I want to talk about is uh, your concept of Psalm 23, which is what we're going to be talking about uh, this week. And now I think you can go on to that next slide. I just Google imaged Psalm 23, and these were some of the things that came up. And I'm not going to lie, that's probably pretty similar to uh, the concepts that I had uh, not too long before I went to Israel. But you have this idea of like the rolling green hills of like Scotland or something like that. Like the one um, there on the lower, let's see, your right, is, uh, is definitely something like that. And, uh, you know, it's just a crazy idea. I remember as a kid, we used to have this Psalm 23 book. And, uh, and you flip through the pages, and it was basically just page after page after page of, like, these rolling greed hills and nice, beautiful settings and uh, waterfalls and just this really romantic idea of uh, God as the shepherd leading his flock through these, these beautiful scenes. Uh, but the real picture, let's see, go one more. We're going to take you on a journey into the real wilderness. This is me and some friends we're uh, going to go off into the uh, Judean wilderness. So first thing you guys got to get always, hat, sunscreen, water, sunglasses. Make sure you're ready to go off in the wilderness. So that's what we're doing there in that picture. Uh, and then we went off in a hike into the wilderness. Now this is what you should picture when you think about Psalm 23. 
this uh, interesting story on this um, slide, I actually uh, took this from a tour bus. We were driving down from uh, Jerusalem to Jericho. I'll show you guys a map of that shortly. But um, we're driving down, and I hear people on the right side of the bus yell out, oh, my gosh, you know, this is our first year, you know, there's a Bedouin and a sheep on, on the, side of the, uh, the side of the road. So, of course, everybody runs up, and you only have this one split second to try to nab this photo. And I was able to get it, and I was so excited because every year I've gone back since, I've tried to beat this photo, and every year I can't because this one's just so great. But there's a couple of things I want you to notice there. I mean, first of all, just notice how barren. Notice how desolate and barren this is and how hilly and rocky. Uh, this is the wilderness where uh, Jesus is going to go to be tempted. This is the wilderness that David will flee to when he's uh, escaping his son Absalom. Uh, this is what you need to have in mind when you're reading things like Psalm 23. Uh, 23 sorry. The other thing I want you to notice, if you can see it in the picture, are these lines that are traversing the sides of the hills. Do you see that? Just barely. They look like little tiny paths, but it's a bunch of them all the way up and down the, uh, the hill. Uh, this is literally carved out by those sheep after hundreds and hundreds of years of these Bedouin grazing across these, or taking their flock to graze across the hill they carve out uh, these little tiny paths. And so this is where the Bedouin have lived and raised their flocks of sheep and goats uh, for a very, very long time. I'll tell you guys one other story, uh, because this obviously is a picture from a long ways away, but I actually had a much more uh, awkward and more intimate encounter with a Bedouin and a sheep once. Um, me and my friends, we were uh, going to one of these uh, archeological sites, one of these ruins, and um, Modern-day Bedouin frequent the Israeli parks because they're uh, kind of public land that they can go and allow their sheep to graze. So from time to time, you'll run into um, a Bedouin and his flock. So uh, as we tend to do, we kind of scatter out across the tell to see who can beat the other person for finding the most interesting things on the tell. And so I'm all alone on, on the top of this part of the tell. And to my shock and delight and a little bit of horror, I see this uh, huge flock of sheep and goats just coming over the side of the tell straight towards me. And I'm like, yeah, what, what do I do? I've never been in this situation before. And, uh, and so I just, I stand there and, sure, and I'm also like in amazement, like, oh yes, this is like a biblical experience right here. This is great. And so I kind of let them pass me. And uh, those romantic pictures of the nice pretty white sheep in the green pasture, these, these things were disgusting. Uh, the sheep and goats were mixed and the goats were big and, uh, and kind of creepy. So I kept my distance. But, um, but anyways, also to my delight, I see the shepherd come up over the side of the hill and he's calling out to his sheep uh, as he's coming. And so I'm like, oh, this is great. This is like two or three years uh, into going to Israel in the summers. So I have a little bit of broken Hebrew, which is awful. I should have tried to speak Arabic to him because uh, the Bedouin are Arab speakers. But, uh, but anyways, in my broken Hebrew, I tried to say hello and how is he doing? And, and, um, and he's like, yeah, yeah, doing good. And then he uh, made the sign for, do you have a cigarette? And I said, no, I don't have a cigarette. <laughs> and we kind of stood there for a while and, uh, and then he went on his way and I was just like, oh my gosh, this is what a great experience this is. <laughs> we had this moment, you know, on the tell with the Bedouin shepherd. And he probably totally forgot about it and just moved right on along. But for me, it's a, it's a memory that I will always cherish there, my, my moment with the, with the Bedouin shepherd. So, um, but, you know, I just kind of stayed and watched, and the flock moved on. And, um, 
uh, it was just a really unique experience. And I, I noticed afterwards that I was uh, trapped by a sea of their uh, left behinds. And uh, so that was the next challenge to, to, um, to get over. But, but anyways, it was a really unique experience. And um, it's also kind of unique because we tend to romanticize the idea of shepherds, too. But uh, there was nothing special about this guy. He was a little stinky as well. And uh, for a lot of, you know, the Israelis and even some of the other Arabs, the Bedouin are kind of like the gypsies or kind of like the, the, the lower caste of society. So he was probably surprised that I was talking to him, period, because it's kind of like, well, just, you know, ignore each other and we'll move on. <laughs> but, um, but anyways, yeah, that was uh, just a really unique and special experience. All right, but let's talk about the what and the where and the how the wilderness works. Uh, so you guys know as you're reading your Bibles from this point forward, um, some of the things to think about as you're reading through the Old Testament and New Testament. Um, so first of all, Israel exists on what's sometimes called the Levant, which means literally a land bridge. If you see on that satellite map, there's just this small strip of green right along that um, eastern edge of the Mediterranean Sea that will connect the continents. It'll connect Africa and Egypt up to Mesopotamia and Asia and, uh, and Europe as well. So this little, this little path is the promised land. We're going to talk about that more uh, next week. But this week, we really want to focus in how does uh, the wilderness work. So what you need to understand is that the way Israel's weather works is that the prevailing winds go from west to east, that uh, nice, moist, uh, humid air that uh, comes off the Mediterranean is blown across Israel, and as the elevation uh, goes up, it rains. So the coastal plain uh, where the Philistines were at, the Shephelah or the low country where you have Lachish and Gezer and other sites, that gets a lot of rain. The central hill country also will get a lot of rain, but once you go over that top and you start heading down into the valley towards Jericho, uh, the rain cuts off, and the, the change is abrupt and sudden. It's really quite amazing. And uh, so you see there, just to the right of Jerusalem, is the wilderness of Judah, or the wilderness of Judea, depending on Old Testament or New Testament, wilderness of Judah and Old Testament. And um, this is just right up against Israel. This is right up against the tribe of Judah and their um, allotment. And then south of them is the Negev. I mentioned this a little bit earlier. Uh, Abraham is going to be a lot, uh, do a lot in the in the Negev. You've got Beersheba and a rod down there, and the reason the Negev gets dry is that it's just a little bit too far south to get those prevailing winds that come off the Mediterranean. Now the Negev will get rain more so than, <clears throat> excuse me, the wilderness of Judah, because occasionally those rain clouds will dip south, and the Negev will uh, will flood and get rain. But for the most part, it will be. A very, very dry wasteland. And then, of course, south of that is the wilderness of Sinai. This is where Israel is going to be wandering in the wilderness for 40 years before they're coming into the promised land. And, uh, and that's going to look pretty similar. Unfortunately, I've never been there because that's technically in Egypt today. And that's been pretty difficult to get across the border lately. But someday, someday, I would love to go into Egypt. Another thing to note on this map is that Jerusalem sits right up against the wilderness. If, uh, if any of you, and let me just get an idea, have any of you been able to go to Jerusalem? Yeah. Oh, great. Wow, a lot of the audience. Okay. 
and you've probably gone up to the Mount of Olives, and there's that uh, parking lot that you get off the tour bus, and you look out over Jerusalem. It's a beautiful shot. Everybody takes pictures. Generally, there's a guy with a camel there who's going to charge you like $15 to ride the camel or something like that. But, uh, but anyways, um, if you ever are there and get a chance to, um, don't just look west towards Jerusalem, but go back uh, towards the cemetery and look east. Because what you'll notice is that Mount of Olives, which is just a little bit higher than Jerusalem, sits a little bit higher than Jerusalem, uh, kind of obscures your view, but just east of the Mount of Olives is the beginning of the wilderness. And you'll see that just that desolation uh, begin literally right at the edge of Jerusalem. This is important because uh, Jerusalem is sort of a doorway, if you will, to the wilderness. And when people want to flee in times of trouble, uh, Jerusalem's a great escape point because you just head straight east, and before you know it, you're into the desolate wasteland of the wilderness, which has plenty of places to hide. So when David uh, needs to flee from his son Absalom, because Absalom has taken the throne, he's going to slip out east. He's going to go right around that Mount of Olives and straight down towards Jericho and hide in the caves that he knows all too well from hiding from Saul and others. Um, King Herod is another interesting example. Uh, he, being a very paranoid guy, builds several uh, wilderness fortifications that in case he needs to flee, in case Rome is going to be trouble up to the north and to the west, or he's got other enemies maybe down in Egypt, and he needs to flee east, he's got um, a fortress near Bethlehem, the Herodian, He's also got Masada further south uh, in the Judean wilderness, uh, just west of the Dead Sea. So Herod knows this same idea. If I want to flee, if I want a place of refuge, I'm fleeing into the wilderness. And so he's got his escape route right there at Jerusalem as well. Go ahead. All right, we're going to talk about some of the attributes of the Old Testament. For some reason, I have lost my document and my notes, so I'll just have to go off the slides, but that should be just fine. So um, now that you have kind of this idea, you've got a picture in your head now of what it looks like. Remember those sheep on the, grazing on the hillside? And now you've got kind of a picture of the where and the how it works and what kind of the nature of the wilderness is like. Let's talk about some of the attributes that we find in the Old Testament. How does the Old Testament describe the wilderness? So the first point we need to know is that it is, uh, it is chaos. And this might be interesting to you because you think wilderness, that's not particularly chaotic. It's probably pretty boring, uh, but not in uh, the minds of the Old Testament readers. <clears throat> so there's uh, several different attributes that you might think of about chaos. <clears throat> Uh, the Bible will talk about the winds, the scorching winds that come around as part of the chaos. There's, of course, danger in the wilderness, robbers. Uh, when uh, Jesus tells his parable about the Good Samaritan, it's going to take place on that Jericho road. And his hearers, they know that's a dangerous road because you've got to pass through the heart of the Judean wilderness. Um, but another interesting facet that you might not expect about the chaos of the wilderness is water. And uh, you think every time I get to go to Israel in the summers only, unfortunately, I always see it in the dry season. So the wilderness is just completely barren of any water. But in the rainy season, especially when it's raining on the central hill country, even if it's not raining in the wilderness, 
a lot of that rain will be just far enough over that um, watershed point that it will start draining down into the wilderness. And all along the, uh, the, the hill country are these wadis, uh, these intermittent streams. And uh, during the rainy season, they're dangerous places to be because even if it's not raining there, you can suddenly be in a situation uh, where the floodwaters rise and the torrents of the waters of the wadis can come and sweep you away. They're very powerful things. They carve out the desert because the desert, being mostly rock, does not absorb water very well. So when it rains, it floods, and it floods severely. Uh, I would love to see this. I wish I could say I took this picture. I didn't. This was Google Images. But man, it would be great uh, to experience and see this. You can see the signs of it when you go there. If you look off in the hill country, you can see the drainage points uh, in the hill country. But anyways, there's some interesting psalms that talk about this. And uh, let's see, let's go to Psalm 124 to start. By the way, you'll want to keep your finger in Psalm 123 because we'll be, or 23rd Psalm, sorry, we'll be going back there for sure. Oh, we'll just start in verse 1. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side when people rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us up alive when their anger was kindled against us. Then the flood would have swept, uh, swept us away. The torrent would have gone over us. Then over us would have gone the raging waters. Now, this is interesting because I would read this psalm initially and think about uh, the ocean or uh, storms at sea. But what the psalmist is most likely thinking of here in this situation are the sudden floods in the Negev and in the wilderness, those powerful streams of water that come suddenly and without warning. He's comparing this analogy of the wadis in the wilderness uh, with, with this idea of uh, the enemies of the psalmist rising up against him and attacking him. Let's try Psalm 69, 1 through 3. We're going to be touching on a lot of different scriptures tonight, but what I want you guys to get in all this is as you're reading the Bible uh, more on your own past this point, that you're going to catch some of these wilderness analogies being used on a regular basis in the midst of the Old Testament. 69, verse 1, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters, and the flood sweeps over me. I am weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. Uh, Just something to think about there on verse 3. Think about how important water is constantly in the wilderness and how often uh, water figures in uh, to the Old Testament. Um, My soul longs for the Lord like uh, as the deer pants for water. Uh, this idea of water happens over and over and over and over again. Now, verse 2, look at that. I sink into deep mire. Now, here's an interesting thing that I just learned recently studying uh, for this lesson tonight. Um, when you go and you hike through some of the wadis in the wilderness, you'll see that uh, occasionally pools will form. So the flood will wash away, but there'll be a depression left where a pool will form. Now, that water, if you saw that picture, oh, you still, still see it. That's dirty water. 
when that water settles and the water evaporates, what's left is the sludge. And since Bedouin are constantly taking their sheep uh, through this area, it's not uncommon uh, for sheep to get stuck in that deep mire. And you see that the psalmist using this uh, pastoral analogy because his audience knows about the wilderness. It knows about the, treacherous, uh, the treacherousness of the wadis. And part of that treacherousness is uh, the deep mire where there is no foothold and, uh, and places where you can get stuck. And of course, you can't drink that water. That's not living water, which we'll talk about that in a moment. That's dead water. Uh, so the psalmist is saying, I'm stuck in the mud and I'm crying out because I am thirsty. My throat is parched. Speaking of which... Everybody's going to be thirsty after this lesson. All right, the wilderness is also a place of danger. Let's go to that Job passage. That's a really great passage for illustrating this. If I remember, it was Job 24. Okay, great. Job 24. Can't quite read the edge of that. All right. Um, I'll start in verse 4. They thrust the poor off the road. The poor of the earth all hide themselves. Uh, behold, like wild donkeys in the desert, the poor go out to their toil seeking game. The wasteland yields food for their children. They gather their fodder in the field, and they glean uh, the vineyard of the wicked man. They are wet with the rain of the mountains, and cling to the rock for the lack of shelter. These are those who snatch the fatherless child from the beast, and they take a pledge against the poor. Is that the wilderness illustration I was looking for? All right, well, I can't read that Job one, but there's still some wilderness ideas in there that you see. <laughs> All right, Deuteronomy 8. That one I can see up there. All right. Deuteronomy. Okay, so get your minds uh, from the Judean wilderness into the Sinai wilderness. Actually, no, this is just before the Israelites are entering into the promised land in the book of Deuteronomy. And we'll start in uh, chapter 8, verse 15. Then your heart will be lifted up and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Just a quick side note. Whenever you're reading your Old Testament and you see that phrase, you should mark it down and, uh, and put something. I, I tend to put like memory next to it or remember or something like that because you will see that phrase repeated over and over and over again in pretty much uh, every Old Testament book. Out of the house of slavery. Oh, sorry. Uh, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. The Lord who brought you out of Egypt and the house of slavery, uh, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness, 
with its fiery serpents and scorpion and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness um, with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. All right, so notice those themes uh, that, the, uh, that Deuteronomy is talking about right there. Uh, God who fed you and provided for you in the wilderness manna, it was a place of testing and it was a place of danger. Uh, serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground. Finally, Psalm 42, it's a place of desolation and need. And that's the verse I was quoting early. As the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night. Uh, while they say to me all day long, where is your God? These things I remember as, my, as I pour out my soul. How I would go with the strong and lead them in the procession to the house of God with glad shouts of uh, and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. All right, so when you read passages like that, once again, think of those wilderness images. Bring those wilderness images to your mind and think about how uh, precious water is. Another interesting side note in the Old Testament is that because water and shelter from these wilderness, from these harsh circumstances are so important, uh, consequently, one of the highest virtues is hospitality. And even today in uh, Israeli and Arab culture, hospitality is very, very important. And you will see this uh, riddled throughout the Old Testament as well. Um, even in that, uh, the story of the Levite and his concubine, hospitality plays a primary role. If you need to understand how important hospitality is to really understand what's going on in that uh, particular story. Um, I remember uh, one time we were invited after a dig day to go over to this uh, this guy's house who lives in Kibbutz Gezer, just beside the site where we dig. And uh, he invited us over for coffee and fruit. And he said, um, you, know, you know, please come over. But as Americans, uh, for some whatever reason, I'm not sure why, but it's kind of polite to decline the first offer. Like, oh, no, I don't want to be a bother, you know. We'll pass this time around, maybe next time. He's like, no. I, enough with your American politeness. When I tell you to come over, accept my hospitality and come over. This is insulting to me that you would decline this. So we learned, you know, if someone invites you over, if someone says, hey, come in for a drink or something like that, uh, especially when you're in the shops in Jerusalem, they'll always offer you coffee or juice or something like that. Come in, come in, let's get out of the heat, come in for a drink. And, uh, and so it is very impolite to then be the one that says, no, I reject your hospitality. Let me, you know, go on to some, something else. Um, all right, now, this is a paradox. So this is a place of chaos. It is a place of danger. It is a place of desolation and need. And yet you also find in the Old Testament that it is a place of refuge. Uh, we've already discussed this a little bit with the idea of Herod going into the wilderness and David. Psalm 55, 6 through 8. Yeah, we've already discussed this uh, quite extensively with David. 
but here's one of these other Psalms that's going to talk about that. And I say, this is verse 6, Oh, that I had wings like a dove, I would fly away and be at rest. Yes, I would wander far away, I would lodge in the wilderness, I would hurry to find shelter from the raging wind and tempest. So this is a shelter, is a place of refuge. It was a place of refuge for outcasts and robbers, but also people like David or others that needed to escape from political enemies. And the wilderness was a place to go out to be alone and to seek refuge from the troubles of the world, so to speak. Another idea is, we can go on to the next slide, the opposite of the wilderness in the Old Testament is going to be a garden or a city. Uh, The wilderness is a place that takes work and effort in order to survive. And capture this image in your mind when you're thinking of uh, like Genesis 3 and the fall of man, when God expels Adam and Eve from the garden, uh, he's expelling them from this place of bounty and plentifulness, where food just grows on trees, out into the wilderness, out into the wilderness where you have to scratch living off rocks, where you have to work and toil Uh, for your existence. And that is going to be the wilderness of Judah. Not that that was where God threw them out, but that's what the the ancients will have in their mind. Finally, it's also a passageway and not a destination. As you read in the Old Testament, you'll see that uh, this is not... uh, someplace people want to go. This is something that people have to pass through and, uh, and get to the other side of. And one last attribute I want to talk about is this idea of the word again. We'll go back to the Hebrew. Midbar, the word for, he- uh, for wilderness, um, is related to another word, devar. That's the root that's in there. And that means word, thing, or affair, or matter. And it's strange that these two words are related. But um, I was, in my study for this lesson, I came upon, uh, Ray Vanderlaan had an idea that it was related to this idea of shepherding and pasture land, and I looked in my lexicons and dictionaries, and I couldn't find that repeated, so I'm not going to stand here authoritatively and say this is the connection, but it really made sense to me, and I think it might make sense to you guys as well. So the word devar, which can mean word, thing, or fair matter, in its verb form is going to mean to speak. Now, remember that analogy that I was talking about earlier when the, when the flock came up over the tell. The shepherd speaks to his flock continually. Uh, this is a way to reassure the flock, to let them know that this is not danger, don't be spooked. This is a way uh, to guide them uh, when, the sh- when the flock uh, go too far away from the shepherd's voice. They know they've got to come back. If they get lost, they listen for that shepherd's voice in order to bring them back uh, to where they need to go. So sound and voice and speaking are also connected with this idea of pasture land and shepherds and his flocks are also connected with the wilderness. And I think it's such a profound idea. I wanted to go ahead and give this to you guys as well uh, because in case you can't uh, already see where this is headed, um, there's so many connection points with our lives and the wildernesses that we're facing and learning to follow Jesus, our good shepherd, through the wildernesses of life. And, uh, and as we go through some of these examples, I want to keep, that, uh, keep those ideas in mind as you go through. Let's go ahead and go to the next slide. There we go. All right, let's go back. And I told you to keep your finger in Psalm 23. Now we're going to go back and go through that in a little bit more depth. 
The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. All right, once again, everyone thought of Scotland and the rolling green hills. Take that image, push it away. Bring back that image, which, yeah, we got that on the slide there. Now, green pastures. How in the world are there green pastures in the wilderness? In fact, there are. Uh, these flock have to survive off something. They're not uh, just surviving off of the rocks. Uh, but the moist air that comes in off the Mediterranean also settles in that Arava Valley, in, in, the, in the Jordan Valley, where Jericho is. And during the night, as things cool, dew collects on the rocks. And as the dew collects and drops off into the dirt, beneath the rocks, grass will grow. The Bedouin know to go to the cool side of the mountain uh, and to bring their flocks there because uh, just barely some green shoots will grow up in between the rocks. And these are the green pastures that they have in mind. Um, and it's amazing because I go there and I look and I see, I don't see anything. I don't know how these flocks survive, but they do. For thousands of years, these Bedouin have been uh, guiding their flocks uh, through these wildernesses, going for these green pastures. But all the more reason that the sheep have to listen to the shepherd. Because um, similar to West Texas, if you're going to raise cattle in West Texas, you know you need a lot of acres for uh, per head of cattle because... Uh, because it's a, more of a wilderness terrain. So in the same way, those sheep, to get uh, a full stomach, they've got to journey a long ways through this harsh climate and through this harsh wilderness to get what they need. So they need to constantly be following their shepherd uh, through this wilderness uh, in order to get to all these different green pastures that the shepherd's going to take them to. And the shepherd's got to keep them moving because those, those sheep will just come and just devour like a, like, a, like a bulldozer every little green thing that you think is, is possibly blooming there. All right. He leads me beside still waters. We talked about the chaos of the wadis and the dangers of that water. This is uh, going to get into this idea of living water that you'll find in the Bible. Jesus will use this idea as well. Um, you want to find springs. You want to find things like Angeti. Uh, which is a very famous spring. There'll be pictures of it shortly. Uh, this is a spring where David hides from Saul, and this is a spring where there will be pools of water with uh, water constantly flowing out of the rock, and it'll be clean, living water. That's what the psalmist has in mind as he's writing this. Um, the opposite of this is going to be those wadi waters that come raging through uh, you try to drink that, you're going to be swept away by it. And even the waters that the wadis leave behind are that murky, filthy water that stagnates into pools and is, is dead water. It's the opposite of this living water. So once again, you see this concept of water, of living water, of, um, of life being found in living water will saturate, the, uh, will saturate the text, Old Testament and New Testament. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Okay, think about those paths on the hill again that we talked about. Uh, the path of righteousness is, is very, very important in the wilderness. And paths, if um, you've ever been to a wilderness, are particularly difficult to see uh, because of all the rocks, because this terrain looks exactly the same everywhere you go, it's easy to lose the path. And uh, the path of righteousness, in a way, is, is heading on that path that goes straight, 
uh, finding that and not turning from it because you turn from it and you can quickly find yourself in trouble uh, in all the various dangers of the wilderness, be it in the wadis, be it in a robber's cave, be it in uh, just going too far off track from the green pastures and the still waters. Uh, there's a lot of dangers in the wilderness. In fact, um, one thing I have not done yet, and I'm hoping to go maybe this summer, I really want to do the hike from Jerusalem down to Jericho. And uh, I've talked to a few people about doing it, and uh, I've got a, a Muslim friend that I really want to make sure he comes with me because he can speak Arabic, and in case there's any international issues or anything, <laughs> he can hopefully resolve that. But, um, but I really want to do this. I think it would be a really interesting uh, trip, and supposedly Israel, which is not very big, you should be able to walk down within a day. But they all warn me, you have to stay on top of the hills, walk along the ridge points so that you can keep your bearings. Because it seems like, and, and to do that, you know, you, you kind of have to meander. But it seems like I can see Jericho in the distance. If I just deviate from the path and go down into the valleys and just cut a straight path uh, to the east, I should be able to hit it faster. He says, uh, people try this and fail. Because once you get down into those valleys, the wilderness is so disorienting that you will lose uh, your bearings, you will lose uh, your compass bearings and headings. And um, he said that, uh, this is my professor, Dr. Ortiz, he said that uh, he and some buddies did this. And they, he and his friends or whatever took the, uh, the ridge route and uh, someone else decided they could make it by just heading straight towards Jericho. And sure enough, he did, in fact, get lost. And even though Ortiz and the others took the ridge route and went further, at least it felt that way, uh, they made it to Jericho by the, by the end of the day, and they were doing just fine. Uh, the other guy pretty much got lost and came in, I think, like a day later or something like that. He was fine, but, uh, but that is the lesson here of these paths of righteousness. The, the people of Israel... They understand this. They understand if you're going to go out into the wilderness, you've got to know your path. You've got to know your path that keeps you uh, between the, the sources of water. Uh, you've got to know the path that's going to keep you out of those dangerous wadis, and, uh, and you don't deviate from that path. So once again, this is what the ancients have in mind as they're writing this. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Once again, that valley of the shadow of death uh, the wilderness is pitch black at night. There's no, there's no cities, there's no street lights to light your way. And this is a dangerous place. This is the place of the robbers, the outcasts. This is where they hide in the wilderness. And uh, this is a place of danger. But as long as you are the sheep and you are with your shepherd, you know that your shepherd, even though you will walk through some valleys of the shadow of death, you have no need uh, to fear evil, for you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me, which is the Lord, our shepherd. I right, can go ahead and go to the next slide. All right, here we're going to go through some more examples of wilderness in the Old Testament. I hope you guys are kind of connecting with this idea, but I also want you guys to connect with how this translates into our own uh, journey with the Lord. And I think you're seeing that already uh, this has a lot of connection points. This was a, a really encouraging study for me, uh, even personally, as I was going through this, because I was thinking, oh my goodness, it was almost like that experience with the wilderness all over again, just to see 
uh, how much this saturates and how well uh, these ideas connect with our own journeys in life. That first point there, we've kind of discussed this a little bit earlier. The exodus and the, uh, and the sojourning in the wilderness are the central theological images of the Old Testament. Once again, I encourage you as you go through your Old Testament to mark out those points where the prophets or uh, teachers will say, remember how the Lord brought you out of Egypt and delivered you from slavery in Egypt. Those phrases, those pictures occur over and over and over again uh, pretty much throughout the the Old Testament. Israel is formed in the wilderness. This is an important passage, so I want us to go ahead and turn there. Deuteronomy Thirty-two, ten through thirteen. He that would be God, this is verse ten, found him in a desert land, and in the howling waste of the wilderness he encircled him, and he cared for him. He kept him as the apple of his eye, like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out the wings and catching them, bearing them on its pinions. The Lord alone guided him. No foreign God was with him. He made him ride on the high places of the land, and he ate the produce of the field, and he suckled him with honey out of the rock and oil out of the flinty rock. You've heard those phrases a couple times now at this point. This is this idea of... uh, bounty out of improbable situations, this idea of being in the middle of the wilderness where uh, life is harsh, the climate is harsh, finding food and sustenance and water is difficult, if not near impossible, and yet here in this wilderness, the Lord raised Israel, found Israel, raised them, and even gave them uh, bounty and honey from the rock, so to speak. So the wilderness, it's where Israel has found their wilderness people. It also represents their starting point. This is where uh, God will call Israel. This is where Moses will meet with Yahweh. Uh, Marty was talking about that last week and and, uh, the names of the Lord. Many of these names, Yahweh, the provider, these things will come out of this wilderness experience. So it represents a beginning. It also represents a journey. Attesting, along with triumphs and failures. Uh, I mean, this goes without saying pretty much. Um, but you think of, and we'll, we'll use this example a little bit later, but the waters of Meribah, uh, where the Israelites were calling out to God, saying, God, we're, we're, we're drowning here in, uh, not drowning, but we're, we're uh, parched of thirst, and we need water, we need help. They cry out to God. God answers their call. And, uh, and Moses strikes the rock and said, must I draw water out of this rock for you? And he strikes the rock. And then later God will say, you know, shame on you for putting this on yourself, on your own self-sufficiency, when this is the Lord who provides for his people in the wilderness. So it's a place of triumphs and failures. It's a place of testing. And it also represents a place of starting over and purging. And let's go ahead and turn to that passage, Ezekiel 20, 33 through 38.
As I live, declares the Lord God, surely with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out, I will be king over you. I will bring you out from the peoples and gather you out from the countries where you are scattered. Brief side point, what's the context going on here? This is going to be referring to the exile where the Israelites are scattered uh, by Babylon. This is Ezekiel prophesying that God's going to bring them back out of exile. So I'll bring you out of, uh, I'll bring you out from the peoples and gather you from out of the countries where you are scattered with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out. And I will bring you into the wilderness of the peoples and there I will enter into judgment with you face to face as I entered into judgment with the fathers in the wilderness of the land of Egypt. So I will enter into judgment with you, declares the Lord God. I will make you pass under the rod and I will bring you into the bond of the covenant. I will purge out the rebels from among you and these who transgress against me. I will bring them out of the land where they sojourn, but they shall not enter the land of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord. This is perfect. This is, uh, once again, this idea of exile is being connected with the idea of wilderness and how this is gonna be a process of purging and testing and Israel will be refined through this process of going through this difficult time in the wilderness. Finally, and this is the point where it really gets me, Yahweh is uniquely present in the wilderness. And uh, this is such a cool point because I think, you know, you tend to think of that promised land. Of course, the promised land is the goal. The, the, the wilderness is what you pass through to get to the promised land. But the wilderness you shouldn't discount these experiences and the journey that God brings us through in these times of wilderness because God is uniquely there. God, our shepherd, is right there beside us in the wilderness. And uh, it's interesting because this passage, we're not going to go and read the whole thing tonight, but uh, 1 Kings 19, that's where Elijah goes out. Elijah, who's um, running from Jezebel and her minions, he goes out into the wilderness uh, to escape. And there, uh, the Lord will provide for him, similar to how uh, the Lord provided for Israel in the wilderness, bringing him uh, food and water, provisions. And this is also where Elijah is going to have that very unique experience with God, where um, it's almost as if Yahweh is inhabiting the wilderness and uh, the Lord passes by Elijah. There's the, the roaring wind, and God's not in the wind. There's the fire, and God's not in the fire. There's the earthquake, he's not in the fire. And then Elijah hears that uh, small voice, and God's like, what are you doing out here? Why are you not trusting me? Why are you not uh, you know, doing the work that I've called you to do? But it's interesting that Elijah goes out into the wilderness and here's where he has this powerful experience with God. In the midst of one of his darkest times, this is uh, one of Elijah's toughest points and this is when he's, he feels like there's nobody. There's, there's, there's no other prophets left. There's, I'm the only one left and, uh, and I'm hiding out in here because everybody's against me. And this is where he has this powerful experience uh, with the Lord. You can go ahead and go to the next slide. All right, well, real briefly, this idea of wilderness in the New Testament, because it's there too, and I think uh, we'd be remiss if we didn't point out some of these main points. But uh, popular eschatology at the time of Jesus 
had this idea that deliverance was going to come out of the wilderness. Eschatology means like study of the end times or end events, essentially. And so uh, not um, uncommon groups that were end times groups like the Essenes, uh, like the group that's going to live at Qumran and produce the Dead Sea Scrolls, they're going to go out into the wilderness, uh, both because it's a place of refuge, it's a place of purging and refining, uh, but it's also seen as this place from which God's deliverance is going to come. So isn't that interesting? I mean, this wilderness ties in over and over and over again for the Israelites of this is where God uniquely inhabits, this is where God's inheritance is going to come. So, of course, John the Baptist, uh, his ministry, he goes out into the wilderness, and, uh, and he will say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is here. He's doing his baptism ministry uh, out in the wilderness. The Synoptic Gospels, that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, will compare Jesus' time in the wilderness to that uh, time that Elijah was just talking about uh, and also to the time of the Israelites in the wilderness. When uh, Jesus uses scripture to um, rebuke Satan and he says uh, things like, uh, man does not live on um, bread alone but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, uh, and Satan's trying to, you know, look at these stones around you, and there's stones everywhere in the wilderness. I mean, that's just, if you think about changing that all to bread or something, you would literally be drowning in bread. And, um, and Jesus quotes uh, out of Deuteronomy, and he is connecting his experience with the time of the Israelites in the wilderness. God is our provider. God is our sustainer. It's not out of self-sufficiency that we survive our experience in the wilderness. It's out of dependence on God. And that's the experience that Jesus is connecting right there for us. Jesus feeds the 5,000 out in the wilderness. This was kind of interesting. I didn't think about this uh, before until I did this study. Technically, this isn't going to be in the Judean wilderness. This is going to be on the other side of Galilee. Uh, and the passage in Matthew says, quote, unquote, a desolate place. And this is a desolate place where there is no food or water or provisions. And all of these, these people have come and followed him. And the disciples are like, how are we going to find enough food to care for all these people? We're out here in the wilderness and you can't find enough food to cover all these people. And Jesus says, you know, God will provide. God is our provider in the wilderness. I think you guys are getting that by now. The John 4 passage <clears throat> is the passage where Jesus uh, encounters a Samaritan woman. And this is the passage where uh, he talks about being living water. So Jesus is our sustenance in that sense also as the living water. The water that after we drink that water, we need no other earthly provisions. But we need to find our sustenance in God through the wilderness. And finally, we definitely need to pass, turn to the passage about Jesus being a good shepherd. So let's go to John 10. Fourteen through sixteen. So Jesus says, starting there in verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. 
So there will be one flock and one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I might uh, lay down my life that I may take it up again. Jesus draws on this imagery of the shepherd in the wilderness and the sheep that know his voice. Like we're talking about, the shepherds are constantly calling out to their sheep uh, to herd them, to give them direction, to reassure them, and to keep them in line, to keep them from going too far off track, to to keep them uh, on those paths of righteousness, on those straight paths on the hillside. The sheep know his voice, and the sheep are able to follow him even in the midst of the wilderness. So Jesus is connecting himself with that analogy that the Israelites, they, they know this picture all too well. They've seen it every time they travel through the wilderness probably. And maybe some of them themselves had uh, flocks of sheep and, and goats. And Jesus says, I am that good shepherd, the one that lays down his life for the sheep. I'm not the one who abandons at the first sign of trouble in the wilderness. And there's always signs of trouble in the wilderness. But even in the most difficult of circumstances, I am the good shepherd who stays with my sheep and lays down, lays down his life for the sheep. All right, you can go to the next slide. All right, let's go into application. Um, once again, that number passage is that uh, waters of Meribah, but let's go ahead and go there. So I hope tonight that as we kind of wrap up that uh, this idea of wilderness will stick with you. I've tried to include some pictures. Um, Keep these pictures in mind as you're reading the Old Testament. Keep some of these concepts in mind, Old Testament and New Testament, because these themes uh, will pop up over and over and over and over and over again. And if you can get uh, this world of the Bible in your mind, uh, so many of the analogies, so many of the concepts that Scripture uses over and over and over again uh, will be able to help you. But I also think there's a lesson here for us tonight, which is uh, this idea of the wilderness is used as a much bigger metaphor in the Bible, not just for the, the literal physical wilderness that occupies Israel, but the troubles and circumstances that Israel goes through. We are, of course, the inheritors of God's covenant people brought in uh, through Jesus. And we go through the wildernesses of this world awaiting our final promised land, and we're going to talk about that more uh, next week. But we're in wildernesses, so to speak, now, and there's so many good lessons to learn of what, how the Israelites lived in the wilderness and how we uh, live in the midst of our difficult circumstances going on in the here and now. All right, Numbers 20. Verses 2 through 9. Let's see what we can learn from uh, the Israelites being tested in the wilderness. Now there was no water. Once again, that theme of water coming through. For the congregation, as they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron, and the people quarreled with Moses and said, Would that we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why have you brought Uh, the assembly of the Lord into the wilderness. So the wilderness there, a place of danger, a place of perishing. That we should die here, both we and our cattle. And why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It is no place for grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, and there is no water to drink. Then Moses and Aaron went from the assembly, went from the presence of the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces. And the glory of the Lord appeared to them. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the staff and assemble the congregation, 
you and Aaron, your brother, and tell the rock uh, before their eyes to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of the rock and from them and give drink to the congregation and their cattle. And Moses took the staff from before the Lord as he commanded him. So once again, connect that in your mind with the circumstances of difficulty in the wilderness. I think, uh, especially early on as a kid, you read through these passages and you think, my gosh, they have a pillar of fire by day, a cloud, uh, or I'm sorry, a pillar of fire by night, a cloud by day. All these amazing miracles. They've walked through the Red Sea. They've seen the, the miracles in Egypt. How can they be here at, the, at these waters of Meribah thinking, we should have stayed, we should have gone back to Egypt, we're just going to die out here in the wilderness. Uh, but the reality is, now that I'm older and, and gone through wildernesses of my own, I know that we are such momentary creatures, you know. It's so hard sometimes to gain the big picture because you get lost in a moment, in a difficulty, in a particular difficult situation. And seeing the big picture, seeing all the things that God has brought us through is difficult for us because the circumstances that we're in in that moment are utterly overwhelming. And so even though people reading the Bible later can look back and say, oh, they're missing the big picture here. Uh, but we do the same thing. I do the same thing when I go through difficult times in my life and I'm in those uh, difficult moments and I think, oh God, <laughs> this is terrible. Uh, you know, maybe not crying out to, to die, but close to that sometimes, you know. Anyways, God uses the wilderness to break us of our self-sufficiency and bring us to the point of dependence and trust. Let's read uh, verses 10 through 13. Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Hear now, you rebels, shall we bring water from, for you out of the rock? And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with the staff twice, and water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank and the livestock. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. These are the waters of Meribah, where the people of Israel quarreled with the Lord, and through them he showed himself holy. Moses is faulted here because he uh, tries to do something out of his own self-sufficiency. This is the great temptation, I think, in this world. A temptation for me, going through wildernesses, is to think that uh, by my own might, by my own intelligence, by my own strength, I can get through something. And, uh, but we need to be brought to that point constantly, time and time again, of being broken and realizing it's not us bringing the water from the rock. It's God who brings the water from the rock. And we need to be brought time and time again to that place of realization of dependence and trust in the Lord through our wildernesses and through these refining experiences. The James passage, it talks about, I mean, you all know this passage very well, I'm sure, um, to consider it pure joy as you're going through difficult times, as you're going through trials and temptations. It's always a difficult passage, I think, because it's, it's hard to view those times as joyful or good times. But these are indeed times of, uh, of purging and times where God refines us and God uh, mentors us. And so these are times to rejoice in. And then remember, you are not alone. That First Kings 19 passage, we already went through that. That's the one where uh, Elijah goes out and meets with God in the wilderness. Yahweh is uniquely present 
in your wildernesses. And that's something to always keep in mind and, uh, and use these times to commune with God. The reason it's so great that this lesson is tonight uh, is that tomorrow night, uh, me and some friends, we're going to do a Passover together. It's not technically the Jewish Passover, but it corresponds nicely in, in the timeline of the Holy Week with, of course, Good Friday. So Jesus has his Last Supper with his disciples tomorrow night. And the Passover remembers these wilderness experiences. And so it, this, is, this is great as we, as we head towards Good Friday and as we go on this journey through the wilderness that Jesus is going to go through, uh, we can learn what it means and how to partake in community with God in the middle of the wilderness. We serve a God who knows the pain of wilderness intimately. Isaiah 50, and since this is Holy Week, we got to go there and, and, and read it. Isaiah 53, 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. This imagery is so central to why I am a Christian, because we serve a God who is not some aloof deity off in the clouds who knows and cares nothing for us. We serve a God who's been here He's in the wilderness is with us, and he's been through the worst of it. He's been through the cross. He's been through the ultimate shame and suffering. And he's with us in our wildernesses. So as we go through our difficult times, we serve a God who stays with us intimately every step of the way. And then the last slide. So application tonight, how do you follow your God in the midst of life's wildernesses? Of course, be still and know that I am God. This is that time when God teaches you uh, not to live on your own self-sufficiency, but to learn that dependence on God. Uh, Know that he is faithful. Remember those times, uh, cutting ahead a little bit, but remember the times when he has been faithful uh, and get that big picture in your mind. Spend time listening, reading his word. Get in community. This is an important one, I think, uh, that often as Americans we forget uh, because that image of the shepherd, the good shepherd and his flock, is an, is an a image of a shepherd and his flock, not just a shepherd and a sheep. As Americans, we live in such fragmented communities. You've got your work community. You've got your, your home, your church, your uh, school, um, any other things that you might be involved in, and rarely do those communities meet together. And it's very easy in the midst of having a ton of different communities to actually not really have any community for yourself. We have to be intentional, I think, as Americans especially, to fight against that cultural trend and build that community in our churches, build that community uh, amongst our families as well. And so this is an important thing that can help bring you through those wildernesses and keep in mind. And then finally, I want to go to uh, Deuteronomy 8. And that's where we'll we'll conclude the night there. Um, And those last two passages, we're going to 
definitely be diving into those uh, next week. Deuteronomy 8, starting in verse number 18. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. This important idea of remembering the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt is paramount in scripture. It's through the whole book. I mean, uh, Deuteronomy 6 is going to talk about this a lot as well, but we use this passage because we mentioned um, Deuteronomy 8 a little bit earlier in this lesson, and so this kind of bookends uh, rather nicely. Remember the Lord your God. This is important in those difficult circumstances because as I was mentioning earlier, we as people of that moment uh, can be overwhelmed in the, in the floods of the wadi as the wadi comes crashing through and life's disasters happen fast and quicker than you can imagine and the floodwaters are rising to your neck and you're stuck in the mud and mire of those pits. It's difficult to think in that moment of the big picture. But this is why remembering is so important in the Bible. God commands us to remember uh, the Lord who brought us out of Egypt. That's one of the reasons we do the Passover. We have to remember Yahweh's faithfulness and what he did for the Israelites. You need to remember what God does for you even in your own life and in the circumstances. When God is faithful, we need to remember those things and draw on that encouragement even in the midst of our wildernesses. But also I think we can remember that as hard as it is to imagine, we can rejoice in our wildernesses because this is where Yahweh is uniquely present. And this is a, our time uh, to commune with him and get to know this God of the wilderness, which I think is just such a beautiful idea, this wild God, this untamable God, that even in the darkest places, even in the wildernesses of this world, that is where Yahweh is, um, is uniquely. Next week, we're gonna be talking about that hope that's coming. And this is great because this is, you know, headed, headed into a Good Friday. But the great thing is, Easter's coming. Amen. That's where our hope is. And, uh, and next week we'll get to talk about uh, what that hope is for us as believers and talk about that idea of the promised land, which is um, in contrast with this wilderness. Uh, so as we close tonight, I'll close with a, a word of prayer. And uh, thank you guys for letting me have this opportunity to talk to you. And, uh, and please... Uh, let me know if I could pray with you or anything about these, these circumstances. Like, like I said, this has been a really important lesson for me as well uh, tonight because, you know, I've been going through a lot of wildernesses of my own and just thinking about this idea of, like, this is the time of life to remember that God is here with me, even in these difficult circumstances, uh, to bring me through and to bring me through this refining process was really encouraging. So, uh, Lord, I just uh, thank you that you are the God of our wildernesses and that you are the one who brings comfort and healing and restoration and provision. Lord, forgive us, Lord, when we reach those situations where we reach out to our own self-sufficiency and pride and try by our own might to uh, get through wildernesses and get our provisions and forget that uh, you are our shepherd, you are the one that guides us. Help us to learn to listen intimately to your voice and to trust you that even when we have to walk through those valleys of, of deep darkness, that you are there in the midst of that and that you will continue to lead us through 
to those green pastures and to those still waters that our soul needs for nourishment. So Lord, I pray for any of us here that are in this uh, place tonight that um, are just going through a wilderness and might be stuck in a situation, stuck in one of these wadis with overwhelming life circumstances. I pray that you would just uh, bring them encouragement and peace tonight and the knowledge that you are right there with them in the midst of that difficult circumstance and that you have been through the worst of all that the wilderness can throw at us and that you will guide them through even that difficult time. Lord, even when we get in those situations where we fail you and we make mistakes, Lord, help us to have the humility to turn and restore our relationship with you so that we can walk through that wilderness with you. So Lord, I thank you so much for the encouragement of your word and the encouragement of uh, tonight's lesson. I pray that you would just encourage each one of these believers here tonight. Pray all this in your name, amen.